Welcome to Refire These Times, the podcast bringing you conversations at the intersection of politics, culture, and the environment. I'm your host, Joey Ayub, and today we'll be talking to Musa Kwonga. Musa is a number of things, and he'll introduce himself in a sec, but he's actually the first person to come on this podcast three times. He most recently published a wonderful short book called In the End, It Was All About Love, which was published by Rough Trade Books, as well as one of them, an Ethan College memoir, published by Unbound. We spoke about a number of things, from Brexit to the pain and difficulties of leaving home, the difficulties and challenges of living with racism, the legacy of the Holocaust, the the difficulties of being a migrant, our ongoing fears about uh, or regarding European fascism, how we both sort of um, think about the future, we sort of live in the future as a way of coping with the present. And a number of other things, you know, we spoke of visibility as racialized people, the ethics of taking certain gigs as freelancers, uh, the fact that he went to Ethan College, the importance of doing therapy, the role of football, you know, we, we definitely spoke about quite a number of things. And I will actually just leave it at that. I hope that you'll find this conversation interesting. I think you will. And as usual, I would love to hear from you if you do or if you don't. So that's today's episode. This episode was first published for monthly Patreon supporters. To become a monthly Patreon supporter, please head out to patreon.com slash times or check the website for other methods. If you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and family and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. The music of this podcast is by Tara Beat. Thank you for listening and take care. Hi, my name is Musa Kwanga. I'm an author, broadcaster, podcaster, occasional musician and poet, and I'm broadcasting from an undisclosed location in East Berlin. Great to be back. Great to have you back. Um, I, I basically decided we're going to call this episode like, hello everyone and welcome to therapy session with Musa Kwanga. And <laughs> obviously <laughs> I will be referring to the, the title of this episode, which is the title of, of the book that, that was just released, I guess. And it's called, In the End, It Was All About Love. So... Well, Let's just get right into it before I ask any any of those. Uh, none of my questions, I think, are light. I actually just read them before we 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 started uh, rec- uh, talking um, like half an hour ago, and I, I apologize in advance. They're not they're not easy questions. Good, good, good. <laughs> so, what what is the book about, and why did you feel the the need to write it? Um, first of all, shout out to Rough Trade Books because they put this book out and they've done an incredible job with it. I want to shout them out because. It's a book, as will become clear as we go on, that a lot of people didn't feel was quite right for them. And they understood exactly, along with my agent, Abby Fellows, they understood exactly what I was trying to do. So I want to shout them out at the top. What inspired this book? So I guess there's a couple of things. There's a, there's, a, there's a personal thing and a professional answer. So it's a per- the personal answer is, it was 2017. I just had a sci-fi novel rejected by everyone I'd sent it to a book I really believed in, a book that people had really shown interest in. And then when I finally delivered the manuscript, they were all like, no. And that was actually one of the first times in my life where I was like, I might not be good enough to really go as far as I want to go. And so instead of, and I was basically spiritually like overwhelmed. I was like, I I don't think I can actually be a writer, maybe not good enough. So I thought instead of going off and creating another piece of fiction, which I was not confident would be published anyway, I kind of started a 
reflection on where I was in my life at that time. This was also a time where the far right was absolutely surging everywhere you looked, Austria, in Berlin itself, um, they went from 0% to 14% out of nowhere, the far mm. right. Uh, Orban, you know, look at Poland as well. You look at Serbia, which is going under the radar still with Vucic. People aren't talking about Vucic enough. All these places, the far right was surging. Obviously, you had the referendum in the UK. You had the, um, which was run on a far right platform, if I'm being honest. Uh, and then we had, um, obviously, what was happening in the US. I won't speak that individual's name because he's dominated far too much of everyone else's time already. So basically I wrote this from a place of like spiritual exhaustion. And then also on a wider level, you look at the whole world of fake news that we're in, disinformation, misinformation. I hate that phrase fake news, but there it is, you know, you know what I mean by that. It was almost like in a time when so much was about dishonesty and deception, I was like radical vulnerability maybe is the way forward. The only thing that shatters this veneer of what's unreal and fake and the strong man of machismo is actually something confessional because the thing about confession is that confession inspires confession so i thought i'd go for it with this and the way i wrote it really was to write each paragraph with the greatest intensity i could so actually i only wrote i wrote it in bursts of two hours at a time and that's why despite being very short the book is quite i think intense and that's a deliberate effect so yeah, that's a long answer to a short question. No, it's fine. And it is indeed intense. Would you mind just kind of, yeah, like what is it about? Just uh, with as many words as you want. Sure, so very quickly actually. So my, my father passed away when he was 40 years old. And when I began writing the book, I was approaching my father's age and you know he was killed in a war mm -hmm. in Uganda, a war, I suppose, a conflict for Uganda's future. And when I started writing this book, I was thinking, by the time I pass my father's age, will I have done him justice? Will I have lived a life worthy of him? And really that was the kind of impetus. And there was also a thing about like, as, a, as someone in this city, as a black person living in Berlin, there were questions of how you navigate love and grief and life in a city and racism at a time when you know the climate is approaching a certain point ecological collapse and a time when i i'm i'm really worried about what the far right has done to policy in across europe because i think it's really mainstreaming its policy in quite a dangerous way it felt like it was a moment in time that I wanted to capture in writing as a form of resilience maybe um as catharsis and maybe even resistance at some point so two things really one, um, actually approaching 30 soon in a few months. Yeah. yeah. And it just so happens that 30 was the age that my father left Lebanon to, wow. okay. to move to where I am, currently am actually. He lives, he lives here in Switzerland. And obviously that was in the context of the end of the civil war in Lebanon and uh, quite a lot of people going back to rebuild the country and everything, but quite a lot of people basically leaving as well. Right. And for him, and we've obviously spoke about this since and everything, for him it was a matter of, he, he was working in the Red Cross, I should say, it's an important detail. He witnessed quite a lot of horrors, including a number of massacres, and he just couldn't take it anymore. By the time the yeah. Civil War ended, he felt like he had done his dues and 
he just couldn't take it. He didn't want to spend his 30s and then 40s and etc. Um, fixing what other people broke, essentially. Yeah. And the other thing, and those are not directly related thoughts, but as it happens, um, a couple of weeks ago, there was the assassination of a, a Lebanese uh, activist. Yes. Uh, yes. Lokman Slim. And it just so happens uh, there's actually a link with the main the mainstreaming that you were talking about of foreign policies that the last time I had seen uh, Lokman was in 2018. And he was on a panel, like a post um, kind of post panel discussion on this play. But I by I believe a German playwright, although I don't remember the name, uh, called um, something Breivik. It was about Anders Breivik, the Norwegian. Right. Right. The Norwegian uh, white supremacist and terrorist. And Lokman spoke about the usual stuff that he spoke about. For those who don't know, uh, it was a lot related to like memory of the civil war, the the ongoing hauntings of those who were forcibly disappeared but never acknowledged, like pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Mm. And but for me, in the back of my mind, as I've been as we've both been witnessing the past five years now, five, six years now, more or less. Um, in my case, ever since moving to London, 2015, obviously, and then which was in the run up to the, the the Brexit vote, I started also seeing this mainstreaming of policies, and I started mm. thinking about if this young man, he was fairly young, and this Wavik wanted to cause uh, irreparable harm to, for for lack of a better term, or I think it's a problematic term, like multiculturalism and diversity, yes. et cetera, et cetera did he succeed? Hmm. I'm not 100% confident in saying no, he lost. And uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I don't believe that he lost either. No. I think he fired the opening salvo. They're going to look at that moment, Brevik, like they look at the Oklahoma bombing. The Oklahoma bombing, people did not fully understand what that meant. Where Timothy Vivek came from, the tradition he emerged from, they don't understand fully. They look at that as a lone wolf because it's convenient to do that. But he was the culmination, just as Brevik was the culmination. And if you look at the academics that inspired Brevik, the writers, the columnists, they've still got jobs. There were no consequences for them. So they're creating new Breviks with their narratives. And they're actually, to be honest with you, they're secretly proud of it because they've been told enough times. You know, one thing I've done, Joey, that saved me so much time in the last few months and years, I have stopped wasting time refuting bad faith actors. I do this because I was rereading Letter from a Birmingham Jail and the opening segment of that was Dr. King. And he talks about, um, obviously Dr. King talks about how he doesn't engage with critique of his work because he's too busy. Not because he doesn't care, but because he's too busy. And he replies this particular person because that person approached him in good faith. But he said, if I replied to all of you, I wouldn't have time to do the work I have to do. Dr. King obviously was assassinated at 39 and it got me thinking, if you just focus on making work, books that people could pass around and consume, leave on coffee tables, leave abandoned in youth hostels, like my dream for this book, my dream for this book is for this book to be abandoned in youth hostels in different parts of the world. Translated into different languages, people to pick it up, reflect on it, discard it, and for other people to pass it on. I, that is my dream, that is my ambition for this book. And, you know, engaging with, you know, this debate, this cultural debate, it's actually there to, like, maintain a status quo to an extent. 
because the things that really change, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying we shouldn't reflect critically on our ideas, but if we look what the far right is doing, if we look at what it's sowing, the discontent, the most powerful things I've seen against the far right have been created by people that don't engage with them. The grassroots organizing, all these other people that are like, you're wasting our time. You look at the athletes activists in the US, the people in Georgia, the authors, the critical race theorists, they don't engage at all and look how successful they have been. They are the only reason that America is not now a fully fascist state. And none of them engage with the far right, none of them. I can bet you Stacey Abrams did not do a single moment of debating with any of these Rush Limbaugh, uh, Tucker Carlson types. Mm-hmm. Rush Limbaugh who recently passed away, I should say. Yeah. Um, actually, yes, and I can corroborate that. I, w- I was listening just uh, yesterday to a, a conversation between Adrian Mary Brown and, and Angela Davis. And uh, Adrian Mary Brown mentioned, oh no, sorry, that was in a different, that interview is really good, by the way, but she, it was in a different interview with The Final Straw, which is this um, anarchist podcast that I've also been on uh, some, some a couple of, last, well, some time ago. And she she has a recent book, uh, or at least it's it's about to be published. It was already published about cancel culture, and the way she was talking about it was actually from the perspective of like transformative justice and intersection feminism and all of that, right, uh, yeah, like yeah. calling in instead of calling out, etc. But obviously, when people hear the term cancel culture, they they are leaning into the, this monster essentially that was created by by or at least imagined largely by by those on the right right absolutely yeah yeah and her response to that was that she actually had no idea that uh it was also used that way she had heard of it but that was not her intention her intention was to actually bring people like people who are on the other side of let's say there there's a i won't get too much into it but like there is a certain tension of someone is committing something or someone is has done some wrong Mm. Uh, Adrian Marie Brown has has been trying. She's been doing it for some years now, to to think of like how can we create not just uh, accountability, but transformative justice. So actually finding a way to transform that person as well. Of course. Well, listen. Yes, absolutely. Well, I, that's the the challenge I would have there for her is that I think you need to give it new words. You need to give it new words because fundamentally, it's like you know we got asked to do a conversation about identity politics recently, and we said no. Me and a friend, we were like no because that is not that has been co-opted by the right to such an extent, and now has no real value. Even if you have the most nuanced conversation about that, you're just marketing their ideas. Now, there's a real challenge in calling things. You need to name things um, in terms of the vision that you want. So the reason yeah. my there's one reason my book is called in the end it was all about love is I want people whenever they refer to the book to talk about a positive thing. This is not an anti-racist book. It's not an anti-fascist book. I'm not against those concepts. Don't get me wrong. I'm just saying in this particular context, I want people to be like, this is a book about optimism. Because hope is a really radical act, and actually, like, you know, look at irony, look at all the things that the right has managed, the right has managed to just market so aggressively. They've managed to market cynicism and irony and snark. So those are things, and someone said to me, someone said, oh, this book was earnest, they said. It's it's very earnest, sometimes painfully so. And I was like, good, good. We could do with a bit of that, actually. We could do with earnest. So yeah, here ends the lesson. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, I mean, yeah, sure. I, I totally agree with that. And the title is amazing. It's, it's very like Ocean Vongi. I don't know if you've read his book, uh, what's it called? On Earth, We're, Brief, We're Briefly Gorgeous. Oh, right. Yeah, I've heard of it. Of course, I haven't read it yet. I've read the first um, few pages of it, but it's fantastic. Yeah, it's right. really good. Yeah. It's really good. So like, um, I've, I'm trying to do something new as well on the podcast of like situating um, not just where we're talking, like you're in Berlin, I'm in Geneva, but like when we're talking so that when people listening yeah. to this in five years or 10 years, whatever, there's some kind of relevance. So obviously we're speaking in, in February 2020. It's we're still going through this global pandemic that started roughly 21, over. 21, 21, 21. Oh, Jesus Christ. 21. Yeah, February otherwise, 21. They'll, otherwise they'll come for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah, so February 2021. Uh, we've been dealing with this pandemic for over a year now, roughly speaking. Uh, the last time I had you on was April 2020. And back then we were already seeing uh, the differences between how like your home country, the UK, and your adopted country, Germany, uh, how they've been dealing with um, COVID-19. At the time, the, the difference, I mean, the difference is still very stark, but at the time it was especially even more stark. Um, that's, I mean, obviously that's very painful uh, for yourself, for myself as well. I've, I've lived in the UK for four years uh, and it's become almost normalized, unfortunately, to say like things are bad in the UK. And right. that's something that still bothers me and I'm still trying to kind of, deal with it at the same time i'm not seeing uh as of now hopefully this changes any kind of strong political action to actually counter the cynicism that you're that you're talking about no i mean either to ask you the question how have you been dealing with um difficult question as i said how have you been dealing with COVID 19 how have you been with the situation has it changed and since we've last talked have there have there been like I don't know, habits that you've picked up, like you've just written a book, so I'm guessing some productivity has come in or whatever. Uh, how, would you, how would you describe it? I would say that I've learned to focus only on those things that I feel I can control or influence or at least get done. So what I mean by that is not in a kind of authoritarian way, but it's in terms of my output. I can deliver to the best of my ability um, as often, if I can do that as often as, as possible, that's the key for me. There is a value in doing this deep work, you know, creating books, podcasts, because we get emails from people saying this provides comfort. Like I do a twice weekly football podcast. And that's something that we we chose to double that output from one, one once a week to twice because people are saying this is really helping our mental health just to sort of set our weeks by it. And it's probably similar for you as well, because you provide that food for thought. Yeah. Um, I guess what I've done as well, it sounds ridiculous, but I've started visualizing what long-term happiness looks like. So I've imagined going on holiday to particular countries a year, a year and a half from now. And even if I don't get to go on that holiday a year from now, but I've got a plan in my head, by the time I get to the, the end of the year, the optimism will have got me through. So I'm almost idealizing a particular future, which may not arise. Mm-hmm. That's helping with my stamina. And I find that automatically, as soon as I've got a goal, that's that's better for me. I think also it helps that my mother recently got a uh, vaccination, which is great. I mean, she's a doctor. Um, awesome. She sent me a picture of herself in a suit and it's basically like a radiation suit. Mm, yeah. What she goes to work in is pretty like, you know, effectively it's like a radiation suit and then a visor, mm-hmm. like a plastic visor. It's unbelievable. So, And she's in London, right? Yeah, she's in London. So I, I think what I've also, what's also helped me, Joey, is that a lot of my friends and um family members work from home or they're extremely sensible about this because they've got you know we've got relatives who are doctors 
so at this point, if any of my relatives get anything, if I get anything, it won't be because of recklessness, it will just be bad luck. So that's how I've can that's how I've kind of navigated it. And it's it's been fine so far, to be honest. And also my cooking has just my cooking was good before the pandemic, but now it's it's, got, it's gone to a different level. <laughs> well, I, I jumped on the bandwagon of learning how to bake bread and I've been doing that quite a lot as well. Um, so I mean the 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 book uh, in the end it was it, it oh, Jesus sorry in the end it was all about love is a ode slash like love letter to Berlin in some ways and well in many ways and in honestly in like as most good love letters I suppose uh, it's it's very nuanced it's not you know you're not uncritical towards Berlin you're, there's a there is, uh, well, bad stuff have also happened there, obviously, and they're still ongoing. And how, for, I, I think I didn't never even ask you, when did you actually move to Berlin? 2014, 2014, yeah. At least began October the 1st, 2014, yeah, yeah, yeah. And how would you describe the move? Because it wasn't, we, we did mention this a bit in the in the last last time we spoke, uh, but I think I, 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 I regretted in the end not asking a bit more on that, like, how would you see it? how because you moved at a specific time in london's yes. history especially and yes. how would you describe that time for like posterity for people listening to this in 10 years imagine who will be hopefully beyond this normalization of things are bad in the uk like something better would have happened or whatever how no, would they question yeah i felt something was coming the reason i left the uk is i watched the um so i was in brazil for the world cup in 2014 for that summer, which was one of the great experiences of my life. And mm. it's the longest that I've ever spent outside the UK in one continuous go a month. The longest that I've been away from the UK was maybe like two, three weeks maximum. So I was away for a, I was away for a month working and I'd watched the headlines from the UK and the anti-immigration sentiment was just off the scale. I remember just reading and it's like migrants, migrants, everyday migrants, because that's all I was seeing in my country. And I said to my mum, I was like, they hate us so much. I don't want to retire there. I don't want to spend my entire life in that country. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. They just hate us. We've given this country so much and they hate us. It's like no kind of sense of gratitude from the country. It's always like immigrants need to be grateful. It's like, but the country's ungrateful. So I decided that summer to leave the UK. And it was funny because I got back from the World Cup. I was in the UK for a couple of weeks and then went flat hunting in Berlin almost immediately. And I found this flat in Berlin, which I'm living in now, actually. And I was back um, in the UK very briefly, just one more week before moving back here. And I went for a drink with a friend and he said, you're so on edge, you're in Camden, we went for a drink. And this was the mood in sort of London as I felt it. He was just like, you're so irritable, you're so on edge. And I was like nervous because I was nervous that having found this amazing place in Berlin and this plan, this new life, I was nervous that at any point in that final week, something would cancel it like the flight would be cancelled or the lease would be cancelled they'd have to stay in london and that at that point i was like my goodness you really want to leave mm. there was something about the the energy in the political conversation you know we'd had the london olympic games in 2012 and there was all this talk about how the uk was united but what was so interesting wasn't talked about so widely was that when we had the london olympics the backlash from the far right about the images in the olympics was so brutal and so sustained because what happened was for that briefest moment, the Olympics painted a picture of the country that London, well, that the UK could have been and the far right hated it. They absolutely took a chainsaw to it. And I was like, 
in retrospect, if you look at 2012 Olympics, you look at the far right backlash to that, that will tell you all you need to know about where we are now, because they really mobilized. Absolutely. And that, yeah. was, the, and that was the context in which I moved to, to Berlin. I, I really think like whenever this chapter of history, or I don't like to think that way, but like whenever this chapter of history is written, it would make a lot. I mean, obviously there would be 2008, you know, the crash and everything that would be, there'd be some background, but I think 2012 is when we start seeing the, the, the backlash really uh, ramping up. And then obviously David Cameron's promise of a, of a referendum would be the, the second step in that story. Um, so there, there is a section it's, it's definitely related to this. Um, and I will preface this with a few words on my side as well. But there's a section in your book, it's towards the beginning, I think, where you write, and I'm quoting here, with each passing year, your identity is being divided up with each element progressively more dangerous, end quote. And then you say, look at the way you think about yourself now, African, dark-skinned, migrant, 15 years ago, you were simply British. Yes. And that description mirrors a bit something that I went through between 2015 and 2017. Now, yes. it's, a bit, it's a bit different for me. I can pass for like Southern European and which I mean, I partly am. And so there's, there's a bit more of this. Uh, I'm someone who, who enjoys being invisible. I actually enjoy being uh, not standing out and that sort of thing. And sometimes I can do so. But one, some, something happened during those two years, 2015, 2017. Yeah. I sort of think of them as like symbolized by two violent events. At the end of 2017, and uh, let me just get the numbers right. In, in November 2015, there was the Bataclan attack in Paris, the, the, the ISIS-inspired whatever attack. Yeah. And um, it f- happened to follow an attack in Beirut. There was a, an attack in Beirut the day before. And I was at, in London. I had just actually like two months ago, uh, it would have been only two months or so, moved to London. Um, and I remember feeling like a deep, deep sense of sadness, obviously. But I didn't feel any fear. Hmm. It, it didn't come to London, so to speak. It wasn't kind of too close. It was, there was some distance. But the, the, the sadness was obviously the loss of life in Lebanon, loss of life in Paris. And because of my personal connections to those both, country, both countries, growing up in Lebanon and, and having family in Paris and having gone there a lot uh, many times, I was able to write this article um, as a blog post on my phone. And it was published on Global Voices. Uh, I, I was writing for them at the time. And it, like, it went viral. And this was my first experience kind of like in a spotlight, media spotlight of, of some kind. And the, the person in that article, the person writing that article was confident, at least to a certain extent, about the fact that he, meaning me in this case, um, was able to identify somewhat as French, or at least as, as, as having some kind of connection to France, even though I don't have the nationality. Right. And... That confidence, that self-confidence was slowly eroded over the next mm. two years. Yes. That by the time the, the Westminster attack happened in, in 2017, it wasn't that big of a deal compared to, to the Bataclan one. There was actually quite a bit media coverage over this, but that's a different story. I mean, that's part of the problem, but whatever. Um, I had, my self-confidence had, got, had so eroded to the point where now I've, I felt extremely self-conscious about yes. the fact that I look the way I do. That's interesting. Yeah. Which before then, growing up in Lebanon, most people look like me. It didn't really stand out, obviously. It wasn't really that big of a deal. It wasn't any deal, actually. It was just not a concept. I didn't think about the way I looked in that sense. But then 
you know, there is this this section on on in in your book as well. I think you you mentioned it once or twice that you're very self-conscious when you enter kind of like a public space or a bus or a train or whatever and yeah. there are other black people on the train other black yeah. people on the bus and you, some, somehow and i that's when i started feeling this when i started seeing other arabs or even like middle easterners anyone who vaguely looked like me um i felt like my presence right now is a bit too much i've yes. actually yes. i've actually gotten off buses in, mm. in 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 those situations where i felt that it's too much and if they start speaking arabic I feel like what well, attention is going to come towards them and by default might come towards me. And this, 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 this kind of discomfort became so overwhelming that it took me quite a long time to get over it. I, I would argue that I'm still sort of healing from that process, but it, it really took at least two or three years to realize that the way I looked or the way my body represented me to the outside world wasn't, was different than how I thought of myself. Yes, absolutely. Perfectly put, and our presence is a provocation, no. and it's always been to some people a provocation. And the frightening thing is, the worrying thing is, I say frightening is a strong word, but I mean it. The frightening thing is, there are some people for whom one of us was always too much. Um, and the most frightening question that I've never found an answer to, because the answer is always the most troubling. I was talking to a tax driver once. This is before the referendum. This is when I was working. In the UK, so I was, I was, I'd now got a job. I'd now been working in Berlin, and I flew back to Edinburgh actually, where you were studying, I think. So I gave a lecture at the University of Edinburgh, which I think I've now lost because I didn't back up a lot of my website, and so this lecture is now, I think, lost to history, which is sad. But I was giving a lecture um, at the University of Edinburgh, and I was driven there by the taxi driver, and we were talking about, you know, culture and politics and multiculturalism white Scottish guy, and he said, how would you, is the way things are going in the UK, like we're talking about race and all this, is great conversation. He said, oh, you're an interesting guy. And, you know, we got on very well, very friendly conversation. And then he said to me, what would you say to someone like me where I feel like kind of I'm losing my culture and like things aren't what they were. And basically he was like, there are just too many foreigners here. It's effectively what he was saying. And in, you know, he, he doesn't say it outright, but effectively, and the worst thing was, Joey, I have no answer to that. And I never did. And that's what question frightens me, because if there are too many black and brown people in a room, historically, we know what has happened when people have felt there are too many of those lot. And this is the thing. The reason why everyone goes history repeats itself. Why does nobody learn? It's because history doesn't repeat itself. It remixes itself. Mm. So the things that basically triggered the old stuff are not this. They won't look the same this time around. They won't look the same. Like, so you had before a particular sentiment of anti-Semitism, but the way it's gonna look now, when things start again, which unfortunately, and this sounds dramatic, but we're gonna get some bad times again, Joey. We're going to because when the financial crash hits Europe, it's gonna be really, really bad. And the people that engineered that crash are not gonna take responsibility mm. because they've got a ready-made scapegoat. And this is so obvious what I'm saying, Jerry. It's so obvious what I'm saying, but it worries me because I don't have an answer for that taxi driver. And it's bothered me ever since that conversation. There's been no amount of, oh yeah, but look, our Olympic team, look at this diversity. He's like, no, but that's the problem, he said. The problem for Jewish people, whenever people talk about, oh, just integrate and you'll be fine. It's like, I cannot name a more integrated population than Jewish people in Germany 
mm-hmm. in the 1930s and look where it got them. Mm-hmm. It's offensive to the memory of all those Jewish people who were murdered. They didn't integrate enough or they didn't debate enough that they massacred some of the greatest minds this world's ever seen. And if there was ever an actual fair debate between far right people and Jewish intellectuals, they could have sent one person, they could have sent a teenager and that teenager would have destroyed everyone in a debate and those 6 million Jews would still be alive. One of the most, um, definitely most striking or most shocking things I've read, uh, I was reading, um, uh, Jesus, let me, uh, Stefan Zweig's uh, memoir. Right. And yeah. um, Hannah Arendt critiqued it, and like that's a different story. But one thing that really struck me is how he, because he came from a fairly like well to do background, he was, you know, right. middle class and everything. And he actually was very shocked that the violence came to him personally. Yes. He, he thought that his connections, he was, I think, one of the bestsellers of the time, most translated author, whatnot. He thought that that would kind of protect him. Right. And obviously he learned the hard way that that wasn't the case. And unfortunately right. he, he died by suicide in, in Brazil in exile. Right, 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 because it stayed with him, right? It stayed yes. with him. Yes, yeah. exactly. He and he he. Um, that's. I mean, I don't want to get too much in that rabbit hole in case I lose my. Well, no, I was. I was thinking of Spike just literally two weeks ago. Ah, perfect. Okay. And his. Yeah, of course. Like you know, the future Brazil, the country of the future. Uh-huh. The fact that Spike. I was thinking of him. I was thinking of Walter Benjamin. Yes. You know, Walter Benjamin didn't make it. No. He didn't make it, and he made this crucial work. And look, I've been. I'm obsessed with this concept of people who saw it coming, and they escaped. Or they didn't, or they did, they escaped physically, but not spiritually. Stefan Zweig fascinates me because even being in Brazil was not enough to save him. Even, even being free Prim, of this. Primo Levi became a master, I mean, a best selling author and well respected intellectual largely after the Holocaust. Yeah. And that's, that's also did not save him. No, no, absolutely. So I, I do definitely take that in sometimes. And part of why I feel I I often seem like I'm the one who is overreacting in a situation where the other people are either in denial or, uh, you know, I'm not going to judge. It's also a coping mechanism. Yes, of course. Um, part of the reason why I have that different reaction, I feel, is just I've, I've read a lot of Jewish authors, a lot of them. I spent, I, I did my master's thesis at SOAS on, on Hebrew and Yiddish. And so I spent a lot of time just taking that in. And then, you know, obviously you start with Primo Levi, you end up with Stefan Zweig, you start with that, Walter Benjamin, Hannah Arendt, what, what have you. Um, and it, it's something that, that I ended up internalizing in many ways. Yeah. The confidence, one thing that really struck me in, in Primo Levi, especially in Mana, like I, I deeply admire, um, was how he said, and I believe this, I think he was in Auschwitz, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he said something like he thought he felt superior, like intellectually superior to the German guards or to the Nazis in general. And it took him some time to realize that that wasn't enough that didn't matter absolutely, in, in, absolutely. in like reality. It just didn't matter. The, what mattered is that he did not have the power to do anything about it, obviously. Yes. I said this a thousand times. I said, look, I said to my friend, um, oh, let's debate them. They always say, I was like, how many Jewish debating champions retired undefeated? 
retired, undefeated, taken in trains. There are people that were taken to those chambers that never lost an argument in their lives based on logic. And too late, people are going to realize it's not actually about winning arguments. It's about fighting for the retention of structures. Um, and it's also about knowing if those structures are failing you, how and when to retreat. One thing that really fascinates me, Joey, is the Jewish people and the stories I've been talking to about, you know, Jewish friends I've been talking to. It's so ironic and fitting that the sirens go off in the background while I'm talking. Um, I'm obsessed with the Jewish people who basically decided when to go, who left in the dead of night. And so I, I talked about this to a Jewish friend of mine and, and he was like, funny you should mention that because my relatives basically were told one evening by a neighbor who really liked them, my cousin is in the SS, you need to go tonight. And they were gone by the morning. The amount of Jewish people who left Europe in the dead of night without telling their friends or family they were gone and simply all they found was an empty apartment. Yeah. And that, unfortunately, this sounds as dramatic as that sounds, that like you talk like this and it's, you say that you're being dramatic and whatever, but you've got a good radar for this stuff, Joey. There's a great article by Gideon Rackman in the Financial Times. I keep returning to it. He talks about calm skepticism, about how he's a calm skeptic about the way the far right will play out. I'm a calm skeptic. I'm a calm skeptic. And he said, the problem is with that, so sometimes being excitable is the correct answer. And I'm a calm skeptic, he said, but I'm also the age of the kind of person who downplayed it last time around. And it was absolutely fascinating. And here's the thing, Joey, if you are excitable about these things, as, as Gideon said in his article, great article, check it out if you have a moment. If you are excitable about these things and your work preserves those structures, everyone will be like, oh, Joey was exaggerating. Joe was exaggerating. So you have to run the risk actually um, of appearing hysterical. And in my book, you know, I talk about the far right and I run the risk of appearing hysterical, but I don't care simply because the other day on the train, I was, I was on the train and there was a guy with a fascist haircut on that train near my stop. And I saw him and he saw me. We both knew what the haircut was. And I was like, this is how it is. They're right there in plain sight. And I, I live 20 minutes walk from a major organizer in the far right. 20 minutes walk that way, 20 minutes walk that way. I know where they live. I know their addresses because the Antifa have all the websites up. This is known. We're not exaggerating it. So we have to almost live in the future. You ask how I navigate COVID. I navigate the same way I navigate the far right. I try and live in the future. I try and project ahead where things might be and plan accordingly. I do the same thing. This just this morning, uh, I was reading about the the pretty horrible power outages happening in Texas. Oh my goodness! Um, and uh, the thing that I kind of took in, I was listening. I, I listened to podcasts while I go on my morning walks, and I was listening to this podcast, worst year ever. Um, people should check it out if they want to follow American politics. And <laughs> worst year ever, referring to 2020, but they had to extend it to 2021, obviously. Yeah. Um, and one thing that I didn't know, um, and I think I have I have a, I have a point with this. One thing that I didn't know about Texas is that it had its it has its own energy grid, it's right. it's which is disconnected from the rest of the country, and it's so dysfunctional. They actually had to take in energy from like Montreal and, and Mexico at some point and whatnot. Goodness, and okay. there is a story, and this is something that really symbolizes kind of the absurdity of you might call it like American capitalism or 
something, whatever you people want to call it. There's a one of the richest neighborhoods in Texas. Uh, its neighborhood did not lose power, obviously. And it's surrounded by a sea of, of like if you see on a map, basically it, like it's a black sea. It's just, there's no, there's no light at night. And they got some heat for it, you know, on Twitter, some journalists pointed this out and whatever. And so they decided to make themselves feel less guilty or whatever, but it's very revealing, I feel, to just open up a library that they have, a community library for a few hours during the day, not even at night. Because uh, oh people God. people should know that uh, temperatures are freezing right now in Texas, and right. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they felt that this would be enough between literally between 10, 10 a.m. and I think five p.m. The library is open for a, as a warming center, um, and it just symbolized so much to me that at at some point, it's either those people around that community, that neighborhood, do something about this inequity. And hopefully yes. some people within that community as well, but usually it doesn't really happen from within. Or this will continue playing itself out. And we've been mm. seeing this time and time and time again, that one thing, and here I'll link it to what you, you, you said, one thing, and hopefully one day I'll dedicate an entire episode just on that point. But one thing that really, um, that I personally believe is like, was the most powerful insight um, from James Baldwin and from his work in general is the notion that those who are under, so to speak, those who are oppressed know the oppressors, not just more, not just better than how the oppressors know the oppressed, but mm -hmm. better than how the oppressors know themselves. Absolutely. The absolutely right. Yes, absolutely. Yes, yes. And this is, this was my weird insight in some ways that the, I was just placed at, because I went to London just to do my master's. I didn't have any grand plan. My plan actually was to just go back to Lebanon after that. And so, but I was placed there at a certain time, certain political time. There was something happening that was out of my control. And my specific positionality, my specific background, that I come from a privileged background in Lebanon, but that privilege didn't really do much for me in London. There was a different... Mm -hmm. There was a power differential between like my past self and my present self. And I kept on uh, bouncing around between the two because I would visit back home, you know, for Christmas or whatever. I would go back home and then I'm back in that former self. And yes. at some point, this kind of ping pong between those two selves um, allowed me in some ways to see both sides because I was just in between all the time. I was no longer at either poles. I was no longer when I went back to Lebanon, like the third time around, let's say. I was no longer as comfortably privileged, let's put it that way, yeah. as I was before. Now I actually became much more uncomfortable in my position. I started questioning new things and whatnot. And same for London. I ended up seeing, well, for me, Brexit was very clear from the very first time I heard about it, what it was about, xenophobia, isolationism, all of that, imperial nostalgia, whatnot. That was very clear to me that there was, I, I had no doubt about, I wasn't participating in those debates. I wasn't participating in, for me, a very manufactured kind of debate as to what is this really about? We can't say the R word, we can't say racism, we can't say the X word, xenophobia, we can't say all of these things, but we can talk about everything except the underlying causes. And yeah. I feel like for me, this is one of the most unsettling things about Brexit other than like the sadness that we're on, we're still seeing right now and probably going to last for quite some time, 
is that a lot of this was predictable. A lot of this yeah, was, it was completely unnecessary, completely unnecessary. Yeah. Yeah. So I will transition back to the book and you contrast um, like self-help in a, in a healthy yeah. way because self-help can be, you know, used different ways, but in genuine, genuine self-help, genuine mental health and uh, paying attention to what our bodies and minds are going through. You've contrasted this with the concept of resilience. Yeah. And as it happens, I had published an article right after the Beirut blast. Mm. So that which would have been last August now. And I wrote about how I think the concept of resilience needs to be replaced. That there has right. to be something about it no longer works because I feel, well, it was in the context of Lebanon, that we're not resilient, we're actually broken. Mm. And I will let you develop that a bit. I'll just say quickly, the thing that kind of, I think very visually, and the thing that yeah. is stuck in my mind is this story. And I heard two different people tell that same story. So like two different friends, one on Twitter and one messaged me telling me, telling me this, that their father, two different men, as soon as the blast happened, like within the hour, were already rebuilding parts of the house. And for me, that's sort of like, usually that would be interpreted as that's because the Lebanese people are resilient. That's because the Lebanese people have endured so much, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm not gonna say they haven't, I'm not gonna say we haven't endured so much, we have. But I don't think that this is what it was. I think that if our initial shock isn't allowed to be played out, we're not allowed to transform it into anger. We're not allowed to transform it into demands, into actually something transformative. Yeah. It goes back to automatic mode. Yes. And right now we are seeing quite a lot, even after the assassination of Lokman Slim, the same impulses, the same Lebanese machinery of denial and... and it's a traumatized society. It's deeply traumatized. Very much so. And for me, then, yeah, resilience yeah, yeah. has a way of hiding that trauma in ways Absolutely. that are not, that are not yes. helpful. Resilience is actually unprocessed trauma in that context. Yeah. Unprocessed trauma or trauma which has not been given room um, to be processed. Uh, when I saw that explosion happen, it was horrifying because I remember thinking there is nothing else, that this is the last thing that, that Beirut could take at that point and Lebanon could take with all the things that had gone through the city, the country. It was like, you know what it was like? It was like the Haiti earthquake. The Haiti earthquake was so devastating with all that Haiti had been through Haiti had been through enough, and for the earthquake to happen was just shattering, horrifying. You know, a country that had fought so hard to be free, so hard, so, so hard, that had changed the world. And then to experience that was when I felt bereft. You know, I'm not a religious person, and I'm glad for that, not because I don't think that faith provides solace, but because I'm really glad I don't have to think about the fact that this is all part of a system. I'm glad I didn't have to rationalize this and be like, there's a reason those explosions or earthquakes were necessary. And I'm not attacking the religious at all. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm just really glad that I mm -hmm. don't have to wrestle with those complexities in my faith. Right. Um, yeah. The Beirut explosion just, and also like, you know, the murder of, of Lockman Slim as well. It's not, not a human being who I knew about. I didn't know that her, his name until that morning that I read the news, but I'll tell you something, Jerry, since we're talking, I was in tears. I was in tears reading that news not because I knew anything about his life, but because looking at his profile and what he'd done, I was like, 
that must have been so terrifying, so lonely. And people look at these activists as if they're different from any of us. There was a woman, a photojournalist um, in either Central or South America. And she was in her, I think she was in her like late 20s and she got murdered in her flat. She was a photojournalist and her job was basically not paid that well, of course. She was just renting in a small flat and she would go around taking photos of protests by, by feminists. That was what she devoted her life to. And she was murdered and perhaps sexually assaulted in her flat, surrounded by her work. What a lonely, painful, horrifying death. And that's why I was in tears because these brave, beautiful people all over the world are being murdered for doing the right thing. And they're dying in isolation and in horror. And that's sometimes why the killers are doing it. We saw it in Syria as well. They take a particular delight in isolating and brutalizing these incredible human beings that this world doesn't deserve to death. And it sounds really dramatic, Joey, but I write these books. I write my work to honor people like that. All those people, Anna Politkovskaya, all of them, look at the way they die. They die in this terrible isolation and they do work that transforms the world. Um, sorry to go off on a bit of a rant, but this is why I live with the right title I do. I mean, the reason why I'm so emotional to have this book published, this book is exactly what I wanted to say about the world at this point in time. This is exactly the book, every single syllable in this book, I swear by it. Um, it's my rejection of going quietly into the night, as they would say in that poem. It's my absolute rejection of that. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And there's a lot of different themes in the book, obviously. And one thing that, that um, as I was telling you before, I, I just finished it reading it today. And yeah. you speak of this Dr. Opong, I think. Yes, yes, yes. And yeah, yeah. this concept of um, black gravity, Yes. Um, I will quote the, the couple of sentences in it, um, like basically how, how, how racial oppression would be described, and I'm quoting, as a form of pressure, a physical force that stormed black people the second they left their front uh, things, or do front door, I think, sorry. Front doors, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, sorry, yeah, yeah. I, I misread. Uh, so let me repeat that. A form of pressure, a physical force that stormed black people the second they left their front doors, a thing you could measure or sense like temperature, end quote. I've seen or read similar things from um, from other black people. I, I call James Baldwin not, as everyone knows by now, and it's something that he, you know, he had a way with words. We, I think it's it's fairly well well established by now. And one thing that he said is he did not know that he was black before the age of like six or seven or so. He yes. just is because he lived in a white world in his in, in his time, like TV, television, obviously, and everything. He just assumed that he was as well. And he did not know that other people saw him as not like him, like them. Right. Yes, yes, yes. And it's that which is why I identify with him, although it's a very different experience, a much worse one in many ways. But this in betweenness, this uh, tension of like being within, like I said, he was an American and he identified as an American everything, but also he was not, or at least something about the identity of his nation did not make place, did not make room for him personally. Yeah. And he understood at some point, and this is where the power I think came because a lot of people know that they are being oppressed, obviously. And in no, this is not a, a statement of judgment whatsoever as to like, you know, they haven't managed to overcome it or whatever. Like that's not an easy thing. And I'm not gonna say he managed to overcome it either. 
but he just got to the point where he understood that his oppression was not about him. His oppression was about the oppressors. It Absolutely. was their, yes. like he was their problem. He yes. told them, you invented the N-word. You invented him. You invented that character. I'm not him. Yes. I've never identified. Yeah. Yeah. So ask yourselves why you need it. Absolutely. And this, exactly. the, I wrote this poem, Black Gravity. It's actually the first ever poem I've had published in a journal. Shout out to Sharon Dodo Otto and Noya Hunshaw. They published me. I'm so proud of this poem because I was like, I want to create a, an actual Maria Bickler as well. So Maria Bickler is an amazing Austrian artist who basically makes art out of found objects. She's based in Graz, I think. And Maria is a brilliant, brilliant, one of the best, like, you know, artists around in Europe. And she asked me to write a poem for an exhibition. I wrote Black Gravity. And really the thing about this was um, I wanted to express in a form that people could readily understand how racism felt in a way that was not black people's fault. And the way that I did this, the way that I constructed this concept was, imagine if the air is just thick with racism to the point where it physically harms people. So in that poem, actually, every single, in Black Gravity, every single place that I mention is a place where a friend or a friend of a friend was racially assaulted in the city. So in Black Gravity, every specific area that I reference refers to an injury sustained by myself, a friend or a friend of a friend right. due yeah. to a racial assault in about a period of about a year in Berlin. Because as we know, nationalism is like a kind of fever. It catches on. And the far right really was surging. Halfway through 2016 to halfway through 2017, the far right basically gave birth to that poem. It's, it's, in, it's like the end. Like for me, I, I sort of imagine, again, very visual memory. I sort of imagine two poles and, yeah. or two sides, whatever. And this poem is on one side where I would stand, of course. And the other side is the the numbers, the statistics, the, you know, there's been a rise in the far right from X percent to X percent and uh, xenophobic attacks have multiplied by 130% or whatever. And obviously what gets lost in the detail, the devil is always in the details, is that it doesn't just mean that someone was physically assaulted on a Monday and then Tuesday was fine. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that uh, you know, because obviously they go with like police statistics and whatever. The main thing that that changed how I, I personally started viewing racism and discrimination and racial oppression, everything through these this understanding of like structures of power, not just again, like, you know, well, government police do these things and that's bad and whatever, but how it actually seeps in and becomes something that when we say normalize, what we mean by that is that to just go back to myself, to my own personal experience, well, I need to be constantly on high alert. That's what it yes. means. Yes, yes, yes. Even if it doesn't mean that today something's going to happen to me, maybe not next week, maybe for the next year, I'm going to be totally fine. But I need to actually understand where the risks are coming from. Yes. And I need to know, I started becoming like a mathematician and calculating probabilities and risks and whatever. Like I need to know if I go at that specific place, at that specific time, could this happen? And that mental energy is exhausting. Absolutely. It takes up so much of my mental. Now I'm slightly better. I'm, I'm trying to 
convert that energy into well, the podcast and to writing and to other things that I feel are actually more transformative than just taking it in and feeling overwhelmed. Yes. But it, that's, that's the main thing that I feel people who don't experience any kind of discrimination or oppression or who, who may at least, or who may not even know people who have, which quite a lot of people are in that situation. That's the main thing that they don't seem to grasp. They never have to think about it. No. They never have to think about like, you know, there are parts of this city where I will never go. And I'll tell these stories to like friends of mine and, you know, friends of mine who are white. They'll be like, oh, I wouldn't go there either. I was like, yeah, but here's the difference. I know you wouldn't go there. But if you went there, you can, you would. Yeah, right, mm. right. You wouldn't go there. And I get it. I get it. you wouldn't go there. But the, 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 the consequences for us going there are very different. For example, if I'm in a specific area, that is extremely bad for my physical health. It's extremely inadvisable. Like it's actually dangerous. I have a friend who bought a house in an area which would be dangerous. Well, I, I can never visit him in that house. I've got another friend renting in a particular place. I cannot go for dinner. The reason I've not been for dinner with that friend is because to get to him or to get back from him at 11 p.m. on a Saturday night is an area I would be extremely unwise to go through. I had a band practice one time. So here's a better example, actually another example. I was going to practice for a gig at Christmas and I never, this is how it affects your everyday life. I was asked to do a gig at Christmas for a band a couple of years ago, um, a friend of mine. We never got to practice together because the jam session and the practice session took place in a part of town where I was about to go on the tram and they were like, where are you going? I was like, I'm going here. When do you have to get there? How far is the studio from the station? And they gave me this information and three white people, three white people came up to me separately and said, you're not going there, Musa. You cannot go there that time of day. This is three white people. This was me fully empowered to go. And they were like, no, Moose, you're not going there. You don't do it. You get there by taxi or not at all. It wasn't safe to walk 15 minutes in that part of the city as a dark skinned black man. And that is from those three white people all saying that they were like, they were so, one of them actually came into the, when they heard I was going there, he came through. <laughs> from the back of the cafe to be like, no, they're completely right. They're not doing this. 7 p.m. 7 p.m. And so that's, this is, these calculations aren't ill-founded. Like I might've gone there and nothing might've happened, mm -hmm. but then we hear so many stories. How about the story about the friend of mine that went, and this is a white friend of mine, white American friend of mine. They went out to the country um, not far, no, so their friends were outside the country, just you know, outside the city, you know, into sort of the surrounding area. And they stumbled across a bunch of neo-Nazis doing weapons training. Yeah. Wow. And they were extreme, they were extremely hostile towards them. And this is like, you know, white New Zealanders. They were like, basically, get the hell out. You know, there's there are so many names and so many. I had a friend that went on holiday to an area I could never go. They're, oh, it's such a lovely place. We got a nice little house here. We rented a place. Oh, where did you go? And they told me where they went. And I'm like, that area is known. Like when the wall came down, the Nazis retreated there. I did what they always do. They handed out loads of social services, education, and then the ideology came. Once they'd bedded in and embedded themselves, and now they run a huge area. They run it. 
that these are places I can just never go. Well, I can go there, but I'd be extremely ill-advised if I went there. And knowing that, yeah. Knowing you're hated to that extent, knowing you're hated to that extent, it, 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 it takes a spiritual toll. Very much so. I mean, to go back to the person I always called, but he, like Baldwin I had to leave. He had to leave America in 48 and it took him right. something like a decade before going back or something. But it, it, it affects um, for me and I suppose for you as well. Like It's basically like I have this mental map now. I have a, I have a map, like not a perfect replica of the real map, but it's like, it's vague. I have vague notions of where I can go and not go. Yes. And again, I'm, I'm not a dark skinned black man. So I, I suppose there are more places I can go, but as, as with my, with my partner, as a woman, there are places where I, so I knew of it. I knew that it was safer for men on average to walk or like, uh, I would say like, uh, visibly a coded man let's put it that way uh to walk in certain parts of town at a specific time obviously then then would be the same for for female coded people and we were in situations where she had to call me up to go and pick her up from you know a bus stop or, or whatever mm. because for me the the contrast was very sharp was was very even intense, it actually overwhelmed me at some point when I started thinking about it because I felt very comfortable walking at 2 a.m. in Beirut mm. because the streets were empty and because I look like most people there and I'm pretty tall and usually I don't feel like I, I would be under threat. Mm. But when I met up with a friend of mine who's a woman at also at like 3 a.m., I had to pick her up from, from her house yeah. to right, go right, somewhere yeah. else. And those things it's it that's what i mean when i say that the 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 ping pong thing i started describing is like i would go back to lebanon after experiencing london and there would always progressively be something like a part of me would go back to my old self you can because you know routines are difficult to to overcome habits are difficult to overcome but then there will kind of be this new doubt kind of in my mind or this new experience and kind of it ends up actually impacting what everything it, it really ends up uh shaping me in ways that previously i hadn't thought really possible mm. absolutely right when i'm asked uh that's kind of an anecdote but it's very revealing like when i'm asked what, yeah, what's your superpower you know favorite superpower even as a young kid i used to always say like if i had a choice it would be like the ability to to turn to be invisible yes yes and yes that's something that in my specific case wasn't uh, racial growing up i think it was just like i was a big guy and i didn't like how i'm you know i was i'm I'm on the spectrum and i didn't really like being in spaces where there were too many people around me and i had to sort of it's it's a it's a it's a whole mess It it doesn't really matter to this conversation but that feeling then ended up being racialized like that experience ended up having a different word for it. And it just so happened that I had this previous experience to actually be able to deal with it in ways that some of my friends from similar backgrounds weren't really able to do so. The consequences of visibility are so severe. Um, They're so severe throughout history. And once you realize that you, in my case, I realized I had no option but to be visible. It's then what you do with that knowledge and that information. In a way, 
someone like me has a um, an advantage because my visibility will just always be a fact. It will always be a thing. It will always be a problem for some people. So it's really what I choose to do with that. And, you know, leaving the UK to an extent, that was partly a frustration in the UK, but maybe a strategic move as well. Um, to be constantly in a place of agency, you know, being in Germany for all its challenges, it has changed my career, my output, my creative output has just blossomed here, even with the challenges I've had. Um, the professional respect for my work has just grown actually even back in the UK, it's been remarkable. And I guess it was always about having a place of agency because I felt like if I was in the UK right now, I'd be very much the victim of events and responding to events. I feel like now with the work I'm making, I'm not, I'm actually initiating. These books, you know, I've got this book coming out obviously later this year, which is about um, the class and race issues mm -hmm. thrown up by my private school education. Um, I'm being proactive. I'm making the work that I want to make. And I don't think I'd be doing that if I was still in the UK. I think I'd be reacting to events, other people's narratives. So I have three... By the way, are there going to be any hard questions? Because these are... I'm a, I'm a bit... <laughs> A bit disappointed, Jerry. I was expecting the heat. Come on, man. <laughs> well, uh, I have I have three more questions. One of them is is um, well, it's actually it's actually more of a positive one, and we'll leave that one to the end. Yeah. Um, two things really. So I'll start with one of them, and they're interrelated. So you talk about imposter syndrome, and you talk about mm. how like you actually start blaming yourself for not having enough money because you've turned down, you know, these jobs, even yeah. jobs that uh, like wouldn't necessarily be public, like your name wouldn't be on them, but you just felt very uncomfortable taking them yeah. due to the ethical concerns. Yeah. And I've been in those situations many, many times uh, due to what I do. Uh, you know, I, I vocally criticize Hezbollah online and that sort of thing and yeah. Arab regimes. And so there would be like rival governments wanting to, have me on to, you know, the Turkish government wanted to have me on because I was, I was criticizing the Assad regime. Yeah. But obviously a condition of me wanting to go there is not to mention what the Turks are doing in, in of course, Northern Syria. Of course, obviously. of course. And therefore I didn't go. And there, this, this has happened a number of times and some things I don't want to mention online, uh, in public. Yeah, of, course, I mean. of course, yeah. But I did also have these thoughts at some point, like I'm, now I'm okay. Uh, but the nature of what I do, I'm also a freelancer, is that there's a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a very like difficulties planning for the long term, savings for the long term, and so on. So I'm very curious as to, in your case, like in your, uh, and you know, feel free to say as yeah, much as you want on this. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. How has this imposter syndrome actually um, worsened the financial, your financial situation? Let's put it that way. And how? How do you think you could have done differently? Because, you know, of course, like there, um, yeah, I won't give the book away in the city, but you do feel bad about it. And you do feel like it has also impacted your life. It has harmed you in like financial ways and therefore in mental ways and, and mental health ways yeah. and so on. But do you think you could have done it differently? I don't think so. This is the thing actually, Joe, mm. I was thinking about this a lot. And I thought at each stage of my life, I tried to make the best available decision. You know, the reason I'm living in Germany now is because years ago, I figured German is actually a very hard language in comparison to to learn in terms in comparison to like French or Spanish or Italian. German's like the hardest of those in, in terms of the main business languages. Let me learn that one 
so that later in life, if I want to learn a different language, it'll be easier. So I chose to do French and German. And that was one of the best decisions I could have made. So I'm really good at making strategic long-term choices, right? And I'm really good at doing that in relation to my career. The problem is that, as a friend pointed out, I blame myself for situations beyond my control. So I wasn't to anticipate the internet piracy would come along and destroy the value of the written word and of the MP3 or, or, or the value of, of, of music. So two of my biggest skill sets are songwriting. I've written music for TV adverts and, and journalism. In a different society, different world, if you look at my list, my CV and who I've written for, in a different world, 20 years ago, that amount of income has me with a nice, a really nice mortgage. Um, and like the, advertise, the loss of advertising revenue through Facebook and social media, you couldn't anticipate that. So the choices I made were, I feel, fairly smart ones. Um, and I didn't give myself enough credit for the resilience, um, well, the resi or the, 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 adaptive, the flexibility I'd shown. I yeah, some yeah. credit for the ability to be flexible and to adapt. And um, I look at my life and think about the choices I made. And each of the big choices was a good one. Each of them, if I look at them, I'm just someone who's very hard on myself. Um, and in relation to the work that I turned down, I mean, Jerry, to be honest with you, I can disclose this to an extent. I was offered money by bad people because when bad people want to gloss a project, they'll throw money at you. Mm -hmm. um, now there's some work I did, that I, I'm pretty much proud of it. There's, and I did some work for like foundations trying to get um, donors to give more. Some might say it was misguided to work with people to try and get them to give more to like, renewables and so on but I guess I don't I don't regret those years because I always felt like if there was a moment where we never had like a Greta Thunberg when I was working at these organizations trying to help them to give money away to these different causes these good causes in my opinion you know fighting climate stuff whatever that we never had a Greta Thunberg to come along and be like sort yourselves out I would love to have been a communications director for these organizations in her era because I reckon we could have leveraged what she was doing to get them to really shell out but in terms of the dirty money that I turned down, I don't regret that at all. I mean, I got offered some money by a particular organization at a time when, how do I say this? Let me be frank. No, let me just, let me just say it. I got offered money to write a documentary um, about the World Cup in 2018, and I just couldn't do it. Knowing what Russia was doing in Syria at that time, I just couldn't do it. That would have been money that would have had a real they asked me to write the official documentary. Like that would have been really good money, but I was like, I can't nice. do that. Nice. And I knew the second I got the email, I couldn't do it. And I felt sick because I really needed the money and the money would have been great. But I was like, I can't do this work. And I actually went and I told friends of mine, I told friends of mine what the situation was. And I didn't tell them because I wanted them to say, turn it down. I, I did it because I wanted them to know the cost. And the funny thing is, Joey, I'll never forget my friends' faces when they, when I told them, they were like, oh, what did you do? Because I think some of them were still expecting me to like, maybe just take it and not put my name on it. I said, yeah, I said no to it. And we were drinking at three that morning. Mm. What alien concept that is. We went out to a bar, we were drinking at three in the morning. And one of them turned to me, one of my oldest friends in the city turned to me and said, Musa, the impact of that decision, it goes far beyond what you think. Like they looked at me, I'm not gonna, this sounds a bit dramatic. They looked at me the kind of like, there was a shock. It was a positive form of shock. It was like a real respect of like, wow, he actually, he actually did it. 
like when it comes to it, because that guy's not earning like really as much as he should be or, you know. But the funny thing is since making all those choices, my life has changed because we got approached by Spotify um, to host this podcast and now I get paid a salary that covers my, I mean, I couldn't, if I did nothing else, that would be a comfortable living. And I've got other stuff that I'm doing as well, books like this. So it's so funny, like a year and a half of, of turning that work down, I'm now earning money that I don't, I'm not ashamed to earn. So it's kind of, I'm not saying hang in there, everyone, you'll get what you should, because I don't think that's true. I think I got lucky. I got very, very lucky. But that luck means I'm actually, I can sleep at night. And not only can I sleep at night, I can actually plan a future. I can save money and live actually in a way that I feel, yeah, I can be comfortable and, and also write the things I want to write. Yeah. Then like speaking of writing, you like one of, like you mentioned, obviously taking therapy. One of the reasons uh, I started doing therapy again, uh, which about two years ago, I sorry, about two years ago, I started again while I was still in Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, and now I'm continuing obviously via Zoom as many of us are. Mm. Um, was well there were many things and that that's like an episode in itself but like i i didn't fully understand why i was so unable to i was able to read a bit of science fiction and fiction i was able to do some like get some books um, done and read them but i was having difficulties writing them i was having difficulties writing anything that was out of the ordinary in the sense of like it wasn't quote unquote real yes that was, and that is, I think, as, um, I don't know if you know this, but there isn't that much science fiction coming out of the airport. Now there's much more than before. And I would say largely as a legacy of the 2011 uprisings and some of the good effects of that. But you won't, there isn't really like the equivalent of like Lord of the Rings or these kinds yeah. of like to write a book like this, you need a lot of time and mental space. And obviously, yes, to, yes, yeah. you know? yes. And so I started asking myself, like, what would it take to be able to get to that mental space? And, mm. you know, may not be able to replicate it entirely. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be a, uh, a middle-aged white Oxford uh, dude. You know, it's not going to happen. Mm. Um, no offense to Tolkien. And, but what would it take in terms of that emotional energy, emotional resource, mental resource that would be required? What would I need to do in that healing process to get there? Because I had identified, and I think correctly, that I wasn't able to read that much fiction, and science mm. fiction especially, and I wasn't able to write at all because I was overwhelmed by reality yes i was overwhelmed by the fact that i really felt i i think that in order to write fiction there has to be a way of dealing with this uh state of being on high alert all the time yes yes agreed agreed and this is how i started this is part of part, one of the reasons why i ended up doing therapy um, yeah 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 a part of this book is also like a pretty yes. significant percentage of this book is about the importance at the end of the, like the decision that you took to do therapy. Mm. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? 
Of course, yeah. So for me, going to therapy is a bit like getting MOT if you've got a car. You don't go when the car is bust. You go when it's kind of a point where you're like, no, let's get let's get a checkup and see if there's anything going on. You know, like going to the dentist or whatever. You, you don't go when it's absolutely critical, as I have sometimes done. You go when you go in good time. And for me, I was like, let me go and sort some things out. Let me just go and talk some things out. Maybe there are issues I haven't dealt with. Um, trauma I haven't processed. You know, the fact that my, my, my father's death coming along or the anniversary or the timing of it really weighed on me. The fact that I'd be older than my dad at some point and I didn't feel I'd achieved enough, that felt like a good moment to go and talk about it. And two books have basically emerged from those sessions, those therapy sessions, because without therapy, this book wouldn't exist. There's actually a line, you know, that the line that is the title of the book, in the end, it was all about love. I was actually in a therapy session and I was talking about all the things I'd created and why it was important to create them. And I said that in the end, it was all about love. That's a sentence I said, and I suddenly stopped and I was like, I've got to use that. I've got to write a book and call it that. Um, and the second thing was when I wrote this book about private school and he was like, you talk about my, my, my counselor, my therapist was like, you, you talk about your race and you talk about your sexuality, but you never talk about being a private school. And I was like, oh my God, I have to write about that. Those two books emerged directly from conversations with him. And those books are both extremely personal, right? But the reason why people can go, oh, this and that, and you're so personal, you're so open. The reason why there's no shame attached to any of that is because the trauma is processed. A lot of shame is unprocessed trauma. This thing happened to me, this thing experienced, but it's like, I'm not ashamed of that. Oh, you talk about this and that's like, yeah, I do, but that's a human thing. Like, if you're in my situation, that's the thing you'd have done and that's the thing you'd have felt. Of course you would have felt it. Um, so it was extremely empowering, like this vulnerability um, actually intimidates some people, to be honest, because when you have that level of disclosure and people are like, oh my God, you've been through this and that. I was like, well, of course I have. <laughs> what did you expect? Of course I've been through it. Like, really? Like, yeah, of course I've been through that. That's natural, that's normal. Um, and the really funny thing is I, I wrote this from a position of I wrote these books, both of them, without the validation that does come to an extent from earning better. So they're absolutely written from a place in a funny way of like pure self-care and pure honesty and pure strength and no kind of need for external validation. And that's why I'm so proud of these books because they don't come from saying, accept me. They come from saying, this is how things are. This is what happens when life throws multiple hand grenades at you and you somehow find the self-love and the self-care to adapt and to persevere and to endure. These books are actually not about resilience. They're really about, yes, I'll be vulnerable. Yes, I will absorb all these blows and I will proceed. That's the message. Like both of these books actually have, without revealing it, they have a similar kind of ending. If you read both of the books, the book about private school about Eton, this book, you'll notice there are similar endings in them. And that's deliberate, actually. Those endings are absolutely deliberately similar. They work conceptually, but they also work spiritually. And can you, can you just mention the name of the, the Eton book? Yeah, it's called One of Them. So it's about being at that private school. And the reason it's called that is because I didn't want to be like, oh, 
I'm just some dispassionate observer who was there and didn't really engage or benefit from it. I'm like, no, I benefited from so much privilege. At the same time, I see how that privilege is corrosive to a, you know, a fairer society in many ways. And I want to interrogate that and interrogate myself, which is what I do in the book. But you, you mentioned in, in this one, in the end, it was all about love. Like you, you, talk, you, you told your therapist that, or was it to a friend? I don't remember. But like part of the, part of your anxieties were like your accent reminds you of those people. And therefore, mm. of, yeah. because I mean, I don't know if people listening don't know about Eton College. Would you mind just giving a few words in case there's someone not familiar with how massive that institution is in terms of its political mm. impact? Okay, so it's a, it's a boarding school, a private school, um, you know, a fee-paying school, whatever you call it, in England, um, in the UK, uh, which was attended by several prime ministers through history. So I think it's had maybe 20, 21 prime ministers mm -hmm. who went through that school, and it's provided um, several more politicians, some of the wealthiest people in the world, send their children there, have attended there. Um, it is basically the kind of heart of the, uh, it's, it's at the heart of the kind of English establishment. Um, and I attended that school for five years. So from 13 to 18, between 1993 and 1998. And at the time that I was there, there were also a lot of the people, the political figures and the social figures who are now quite prominent in the world at the moment. And I guess I wrote this book to go back in time and try to understand what was it about that environment that creates individuals like this? Um, what is it about the networks? And it felt quite elusive at a certain point. And the, the conclusion I arrived at, I don't mind giving this away, is that ultimately these environments revere power without context. So if you see a statue of a prime minister, you know, you see like the prime ministers who've done so much to damage this country 50 years from now on a wall you just see the statue and they're like, well, it's, it's important to be grand. And it's as simple as that. There's no critique of actually that person wasn't a great leader. It's like that person did something that was worthy of a statue or a bust. It's a very insidious form of influence because there's nothing directly offensive about it. You look at, oh, there's a statue of Henry VIII. Henry VIII did terrible things to women. You don't look at Henry VIII and go, that man murdered like, he murdered women who he didn't like. And we study it like it's complete. Oh yeah, he beheaded that. Like that, ha we've normalized the fact that a king came along and beheaded a woman he didn't like. That's actually an astonishing thing that we've made normal, right? There's even um, like a uh, like a song or something. You know, like one was beheaded, one was whatever, one was. Right, I right. just remember I heard yeah. that somewhere. And it's a joke. It's like a joke. It's so normal. So, so that was my book is really about the insidious ways in which we revere power without context. Um, and it looks at that, it deconstructs all that. So look, here's the thing, Joey, like I look at my life and I criticize it a lot, but actually one thing I started to do in the process of writing these two books was, how about you give yourself credit for doing it right? How about, this is just how hard it is to make every choice as moral as you can, as ethically as you can, and along the way to be judged by some people, you know, I'm not judging, I'm not actually having a go at them, but for some people they'd look at me and my background and one of my best friends right now, an amazing human being, he said, when I first met you for the first two years that I knew you, I was like, I'm not sure about this guy. This is someone who I revere personally and professionally. He was like, I knew where you'd been to school and your background. I was so suspicious of those people. The first two years I was like, nah, not having it. 
Right. And that was that was heartbreaking for me to hear because I was like, I could feel that distance knowing him. I could feel it, right? And now we're like really close. It would never be a problem. But that coldness, that isolation was very painful. I never complained about it. Don't get me wrong. I never complained about it because I understood where it came from. I understood the suspicion. On a human level, it wasn't easy to take because it was like, I, I know that I want to give so much to this world and this community and this society. But the heartbreaking thing, Joey, was feeling that because of who I was seen to be, I'd never get to contribute as I wanted to. So this is also partly why the journey has been so long, because I've had to defeat people's preconceptions in many ways well-earned. I'm not actually even having a go at that. Like I'm 41 years old, Joey, and I've arrived here at exactly the right time. Every project I'm doing now the two podcasts I'm doing, the three books coming out this year, the other work that I've got planned in the pipeline, every single project I'm fiercely proud of. So maybe this is just how it was meant to be for someone like me. Well, speaking of the podcast, um, I would be amiss if I had you on and not speak about football. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not much into sports. Mm. Um, I do occasionally follow tennis I used to be pretty good at and I'm trying to get back into it as well uh, but anyway I'm, I'm you know I'm, I'm legally obliged to say that I support Argentina or France at the World Cup energy. <laughs> uh, depending, depending who's winning <laughs> <laughs> uh, you obviously it's a big part of your life that's like that goes without saying and feel free to kind of plug in the podcast as well when you answer um you mentioned how, and I think I have the quotes here, like you were kind of setting up a team with some people that you met and whatnot, that and I know that this is sort of the power, especially of football, but like of, of many sports in, in general, that I'm quoting, you're all in this team to build the same thing. And though you may not be the star architect, there is an equal value in laying bricks, end quote. And this is something that I... I actually admire and friends of mine who are really into this sport, into mm. football particularly, and who have like who are passionate about their teams and who, um, contrary to what many people think, are not happy with how things are necessarily. Actually, very critical of you know the the business deals going course, on yeah. and you know all of that all of that stuff. Um, what can you tell us? And here, like, I'm not being fair to you at all because we are closing no, closing fine. the it's conversation good, it's good, it's in some way. It's good. It's good. It's good. Um, how would you describe the 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 role of football, given everything we've spoken about for the past over some hours? So we've been mm. talking. What has football done to you in that sense? Oh, okay. So it has an immense power. Football. Um, it taught me the value of the team of contributing to something bigger than yourself. Like one of the best seasons I played actually, which is referred to in that book, we went training in the snow. Now I, in most teams I played in, I would, I'd been one of the better players. I've been playing football since the age of about eight. I don't play regularly now anymore, but been playing football regularly, 11 aside football, five aside, seven aside, whatever form from the age of about eight years old. And in most teams I played, I've been one of the best players. I get to this team in Germany. I was one of the worst. Technically, I wasn't as good as these other players. I mean, the technical level was very, very high. It still is. The physical level was very demanding. I, by that time, I started playing when I was 37 years old. So I was now playing from, from starting as a striker. I was maybe number five or six choice striker. So I'd play on average 20 minutes a game. It's one of the best seasons of my life. I loved it. I absolutely loved it because I had a particular job. 
I turn up each game. I prepare myself um, the morning of the game, watching highlights of my favorite strikers that played that style. So I looked at Patrick Clivert when he went to Barcelona, when he had to play a style where he wasn't that quick anymore. And I had to hold the ball up and play. So I'd watch Patrick Clivert highlights every morning of every game. I'd listen to particular music. I'd get myself psychologically prepared to go on and contribute in a very limited role for this beautiful team I played for. And it's one of the best seasons of my life, Jerry, because it was completely self-sacrificial and I adored it. So football taught me to be a star, but also to, to take responsibility as a star player in a sense at my sort of amateur level. It taught me that responsibility to take responsibility, but also to take a back seat, to be in service of the team. I played for a team in, Sto uh, in the UK called Stonewall, which is a queer football team. And no one played as a defence midfielder in that team. No one wanted to play there. So I chose to play there for an entire season, even though I never played did, there did you in my say, life. Did you see Stonewall? Stonewall, yeah, Stonewall FC. Oh, OK. Yeah, I played, okay. I played for them. And I was proud of the self-sacrifice. So football taught me that. It taught me about love, really. Like, I played for some great teams. And we lost players. We lost players. One of my, you know, I lost um, one of the best footballers I played ever with in my life, a guy called Ollie Broom. He died in a car crash a few years after we played together. I lost another guy, uh, Richard Eagle. We won the championship together at University at Oxford. We won the uh, university championship. And the morning we met to have the championship dinner, Richard I played up front with, I scored, I scored 12 goals that season. He scored 11, we won the league. And he died of leukemia the morning of the dinner without warning. It had been undetected. It was a very subtle, a very rare form. Wow. So I, my, my, my whole footballing life, playing football, has been punctuated by joy and tragedy. So it's taught me so much. And one day I'll write about this maybe, like the human condition. What football has taught about the human condition has been extraordinary. And the role that it has now in society, we see that it's such an incredible tool for sport washing. Of course, we see these political projects which are being fronted by people who are basically sport washing. Um, but we see the, the social power of it. We look at what happened in Egypt and the fact that like, those ultras that got basically murdered were doing this incredible anti-fascist work. And the work that anti-fascists are doing across Europe, you look at Bayern Munich and their ultras and how critical they've been of the World Cup in Qatar. Like, so football has an incredible, incredible social um, force for good and bad. Uh, so the podcast that I actually run is called The Stadio Podcast. I'm also a guest on Ian Wright's podcast called Wrighty's House. And both of those you can find on Spotify at a feed called Ringer FC. But the Stadio podcast literally talks about this stuff all the time. We talk about football in the geekiest detail, but we also talk about the social political aspects because I feel like it's so important to critique football as a social phenomenon because it's it, it, it means so much and it does so much in society, I think. Good and bad. Yeah, for sure. So the last question that I ask uh, guests uh, from now on, if that's okay with you, is like, what are, what are three books that you would, or three, anything that you would recommend to, to your listeners and why? Wow, three recommendations. Um, I'm going to recommend a book that I've just picked up, actually. It's called Three Mothers by Anna Malika Tubbs, How the Mothers of Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X and James Baldwin Shaped a Nation. Um, uh, a book of poetry by Joelle Taylor called Songs My Enemy Taught Me. It's an incredible piece of poetry. Um, a book about parenthood 
As We Live Today by Nikesh Shukla called Brown Baby, which is extraordinary. And Nikesh is someone who I know personally, so there's a full disclosure. Um, he was the editor of this amazing book called The Good Immigrant about race immigration in the UK. And I'm really excited for him because this book is really his first chance to take a kind of center stage and he's executed it superbly, written it beautifully. So yeah, those are the three I want to recommend. Amazing. I actually did not know that there was a book about the mothers of Baldwin, Malcolm X and, and Martin Luther King. Yeah, yeah. I'll, check, I'll check all three of them out. All right, well, Musa, uh, amazing to have you it's on again. I think you're the... You're the first one who came on three times. Oh my so goodness! Far. This is you know you have no idea. <laughs> you have no idea what a compliment that is. I can say this. I'm going to embarrass you, but that is such a huge compliment because there are people whose opinions you really respect, like you know, like yourself, Asteris, Matsuras. Like there's certain people whose critiques are like when you see them writing online, you're like, there's a precision of thought. Like I'm not some. I'm not an expert in a lot of these areas. What I do is I'm mm. always trying to think critically, and so. The fact that you are like, let me talk to that guy. That's just a huge, huge compliment, man. Like, honestly, like that whole Global Voices crowd are just absolute dons. I love them. Um, so, yeah. Thanks. So it's a huge compliment. Honestly, man, that's a huge compliment. No, honestly, it's my pleasure. And, well, I'm looking forward to the second book as well. Can you mention both books as well in case people uh, missed it out of during course, the conversation? Yes, the first book is called In the End, It Was All About Love. That's out on Rough Trade Books. You can order from roughtradebooks.com. It's um, best to buy it directly from them because, you know, it's an independent press. They're doing incredible work. And the mm -hmm. second book is called One of Them, about being at the private school, Eton College, and it's on Unbound Publishers. That's available um, pretty much you know, most places, but yeah, you can again order that through Unbound Publishers themselves. Amazing. Well, Musa, thanks a lot for your time. It's been a great chat. Absolute pleasure, man.
Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com slash fire these times. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.